The Dark Word is a podcast about writing, writers, and those who read those writers. The goal of this podcast is to focus on the profession of writing, whether it be the creative process, the business side of things, or simply offering advice on how to be a pro. We'll be hearing from some of the best in the business over the upcoming episodes. And true to our name, The Dark Word focuses on writers who tend to hang out in the shadowy side of the room. These are the names you think of when you hear horror, suspense, noir. The names who have chilled you and thrilled you. So follow me down this dark hallway because there's someone I'm dying for you to meet. Dying for you to meet. Dying. And welcome to The Dark Word. I'm your host, Philip Fracassi, and I'm very excited today to have a good friend, Mr. Paul Tremblay, on the podcast. Paul has won the Bram Stoker British Fantasy and Massachusetts Book Awards. He's the author of Survivor Song, The Cabin at the End of the World, Disappearance at Devil's Rock, A Head Full of Ghosts, The Crime Novels, Little Sleep, and No Sleep Till Wonderland, and a short story collection, Growing Things, and other stories. His essays and short fiction have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, Entertainment Weekly Online, and numerous years' best anthologies. He has a master's degree in mathematics and lives outside Boston with his family. Paul, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you, Philip. Wow, that's a long, obnoxious bio. I need to turn that. <laughs> <laughs> it's already worked when you hear it all out. And it's missing some stuff, but you have a book coming out and you have some early work that I want to get into. And we'll start, maybe we'll start there. And I, I was doing some research on you and Uh-oh. I was really <laughs> kind of blown away that there's a bunch of stuff that you have out that I wasn't even aware of. And I kind of think of myself as a Tremblay completionist. I have your SST books. I have deluxe editions of everything, but I'd never, had never heard of this, this trio that I just ordered off Amazon, City Pier, The Harlequin and the Train, Compositions for the Young and Old, which these are back in the, I guess, late, yeah, like 2008, 2009. So how did you get started? What, what was your first publishing experience? Take us through that and, and then maybe up to these, these early titles that I just mentioned. I mean, when I, when I first started writing, which was, you know, just first, like, hey, I'm going to mess around with writing was uh, mid to late 90s. And I didn't really start getting more serious with it until about like 2000, 2001. And that's when I first started selling some short fiction, you know, to decent paying markets. You know, obviously the publishing <laughs> landscape is much different now than it was, you know, 20 years ago, which probably goes without saying. Mm-hmm. But, you know, hopefully some of the fundamentals still apply. But like, I never gave away any of my fiction for free, you know, certainly not in the beginning. Like even if it was only 10 bucks, I felt like it was important that I got paid something partly. And this is me coming from like my academic background is, you know, I was a math major and I got my master's in math. I didn't have any training in in writing. So when I wrote my earliest stuff, I was like, wow, this is really hard. Like someone's got to pay me for this or I'm not, you know, I'm not just going to throw it out there. Right. So for me, it was a really sort of like a long, slow process of just submitting, you know, and I would submit to the highest paying markets first and get rejected. And, you know, then I would sort of filter down my approach that way. Everything I wrote at the beginning was getting rejected, but eventually I started getting like, Hey, this is pretty cool. You know, try us again, those kind of rejections. And maybe even the editor might take some time to tell me why they were rejecting it and look for improvements. So 
eventually, you know, I joined the HWA probably around like 2000, 2001 and was hooked up with a mentor. His name was Steve Eller, who was definitely a big help in my writing career. Cause as I mentioned, I didn't go to school for writing. So I don't know from like 2000 to 2004, 2005, you know, I managed to sell a bunch of short stories. You know, the first, some of them are like 10 bucks, but you know, I did manage to sell like a bunch in the range of like a cent a word to three or four cents a word. And my first short story collection, uh, which you mentioned, had compositions for the young and old through Prime Books. You know, it's funny, like, I remember even at the time, like, there's a discussion, oh, is it too, you know, is it, when is, when is it too early for an author to have a, a short story collection out? And I don't know if I have a hard and fast answer. Right. You know, in retrospect, was it too early? Maybe, probably. But at the same time, I don't know, it was very exciting and rewarding to have, like, a, a book that someone else is publishing of my stuff, you know? Yeah. You know, obviously... If I go back and read that collection now, I sort of cringe at some of the stories, but I hope that's the case for all writers, right? You don't want to like read something you wrote, geez, 15, 20 years ago and think, this is genius. <laughs> right. How many stories do you think, I don't have an absolute number, I'm just curious, how many stories did you publish, you think, before you went for that into that first collection? And, and how many stories in that first collection had been previously published? I want to say I probably had sold maybe 30 stories at that point. Wow. You know, including wow. like small poems and like flash fiction pieces as well. So I think in that collection, it, my memory is not going to be great. Certainly the majority were previously, had been previously published. I want to say maybe like two or three, maybe four at the most of the, like the 15-ish stories uh, hadn't been published. That weird little collection had two different lives. Like the first edition of it in 2004 had a, a wonderful introduction from Jeffrey Thomas, who was really the first, you know, big professional writer that I really admired that like sort of took me under his wing a little bit and was really supportive of my early stuff. And then uh, for whatever reason, a year or so later, we had that book republished or reissued with a, a different story or two and also with a Stuart and Anne introduction. Oh, interesting. In a different cover, maybe thinking like, oh, the you know, I think Sean Wallace at the time was like, these are a little bit more, I don't know, like a mashup of, of horror and literary fiction as opposed to a mashup of science fiction and horror. Although there was a few of those in there. You mentioned City Pier. <laughs> that was sort of like a me wearing my Jeffrey Thomas sort of fandom and also Jeff Vandermeer and, and Kurt Vonnegut um, and some other writers that mix sort of science fiction and other genres. A city Pier were these cycle of four stories that took place in my own sort of like uh, science fiction fantasy setting where sort of, you know, American, but never really names, you know, West, uh, Western city sort of out of time, but maybe near future. That's this, this technocratic city is built above, like a 200 foot tall wooden pier, like the wooden posts are made from sequoia trees. So there's a giant wooden pier holding this really technocratic city above. And you have a tree yeah. thing. There's a tree thing that goes through your, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, maybe there is. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So that's some of the early stuff. And so that, that decade of the, of the aughts uh, of the early two thousands, I felt, I was hoping like I had this progression. Okay. I'm writing all these short stories, had the collection. I started messing around with novels around 2004, 2005, like I finished my first novel that I felt good about and it had nothing to do with genre fiction. I, I managed to get an agent after two years of agent search, of desperate agent search. <laughs> and my agent, Stephen Barbara at the time was like, you know, I think you're really talented. I think this will be a hard sell, but I, I would love to work with you, which sort of came true. We were not, we were unable to sell that book, but um, I had my agent. So the little sleep actually happened really quickly. Once I had the idea for it, it was like April of 2007, finished a draft. And this is by far the quickest I've written a novel. Finished a draft by the end of August of 2007. And he sold it a month later. 
It was really crazy. Wow, that is crazy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, usually you're lucky if you can get an editor to read a novel within a month or three. But I want to go back and touch on a couple of things that you mentioned because Sure. First of all, I think it was, it's really interesting. You know, it's, I think this is a good thing for writers to hear because you mentioned at the top that you start with the high, when you're, when you're submitting a short story, you start at the top and you work your way, work your way down. Right. And I think it's a lot of, I think a lot of writers, it's a good lesson for a lot of writers to hear because, and I've heard this from our, our mutual friend, Larry Barron often uh, as well, is that you always want to start at, at the top and let those guys reject you first. I think there's a exactly. confidence, I think there's a confidence issue with a lot of new writers where they feel like, well, I can't submit the fantasy and science fiction because I, I'm not good enough. So I'm going to submit to this, you know, website that just launched yesterday. Right. But I think you always want it, right? There's no harm, no foul. Like start at the top and worst, you know, worst case you get rejected, which is going to happen anyway, a million times in your career. Best case, uh, you know, it gets, you sell to a major publisher and, and somewhere in the middle there, maybe to your point, they send you notes or they send you something. Mm -hmm. And if nothing else, you now introduce your work to an editor who has never heard of you before. Right. How did you go from publishing 30 stories to uh, hooking up with Prime uh, to get that first, the first book deal? Uh, that's a good question. Jeez. How did I meet Sean? I think partly it was going to like ReaderCon, which is a convention that's, you know, luckily <laughs> geographically close to me. You know, so I'd certainly put myself out there in terms of like, you know, joining the Horror Writers Association, right. you know, and, and trying to, you know, just pick, pick the brains of like-minded people. You know, I volunteered to run like the Thursday night, like open chat for like Delirium Books, which was a specialty press. Um, so I don't know, just doing little things like that, you know, just, to, you know, different ways to get your name out there. You know, I hate the word networking, but I mean, I guess that's what it was sort of in a way. But for me, I was always doing it because I was interested in learning from these other writers who... Right. You know, who, who had been, you know, published successfully and I wanted to learn from them. So, yeah, that's funny. I can't remember exactly where I met Sean. And Sean was the editor at Prime. Yeah. Sean, you know, owned and ran Prime Books. You know, okay. eventually, I don't know what came first, me serving as like a slush reader for Fantasy Magazine. And then my collection, my, it might have been right around the same time. You know, so I did some work for Sean that way, too, as an editor mm -hmm. in that decade as well. Yeah, you know, I was when I was talking to S.A. Cosby yesterday, and he mentioned that he got his agent at a convention. He had read on a panel that he wasn't even not read, but he was on a panel at a I can't remember it was a crime yeah. convention, um, and he wasn't even supposed to be on the panel, but he was filling in for someone <laughs> who had you know not shown up or whatever. And his friend was the moderator or whatever, and because he was on that panel, he got the attention of an agent who is who is his agent still today. So I guess the point I'm making is that, and I was. And I've learned this as well. I think there's a lot to be said for these re writer conventions. I think there's a lot to be said for meeting other writers, meeting editors, meeting publishers. Even if you're not, you don't have to be there with a sack of books, or you know <laughs> what I mean, or what are you published or that you printed at, uh, at Kinko's. But I do think it's just, even shaking somebody's hand and saying hello. Right. I think it gives you a different relationship with that person they're not just like a shadow they know you exist you're, right. i don't know i think it's i think it's a very positive thing so it's interesting to hear that maybe the reader con or whatever might have been a, a situation where you met people that helped you with that first deal I, I do think that's a very positive thing for writers to do absolutely okay so i want to get into and i and i briefed you on this i because we, we you took me right up to you took me right up to the little sleep and you and i've had many conversations over the years and one of the things that i uh i've always heard on the periphery, but never really, I don't really know the story. And I think it'd be very educational for any writers who are listening because Henry Holt bought Little Sleep, right? Yes. And I know that it wasn't 
for you, or I, I, I've heard that it for you it wasn't a positive experience. And even though they and they, pub, and they, they published two books, they published Little Sleep and No Sleep to Wonderland, which was your follow up. Mm-hmm. Um, was it first of all was it originally a two book deal? And then also, can you talk about that experience and maybe some maybe some things you learned from that experience that some might help some other writers who haven't been through it? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because I feel like my my career, as it were, <laughs> was sort of divided into two when, you know, the assumption is when you're, you know, when I was doing all that stuff, you know, in late 90s to early 2000s, that the, it would be like this linear progression, obviously with plateaus, but it wouldn't be like a, a downturn necessarily. Right. Um, yeah. So my agents, you know, he sent it out and I think a, a lesson for also for writers with agents, really, to me, the most important thing about an agent, it, which you mentioned is like, wow, we got it read quickly is, you know, does your agent get your stuff read? Uh, yeah. You know, even when, you know, I've been with the same agent since 2006, which is very unusual. And, you know, he's left agencies and gone to other agencies and I've followed him and we've sort of both grown together. It's been kind of fun, but like whatever time, like we've, we've taken books out that haven't sold and we've taken books out that have sold, but they've always been read <laughs> within like two months. Like to me, that's a thing. Like if your agent's like, oh, they, you know, editor hasn't gotten back to me back. Yeah. It hasn't gotten back to me yet. And it's been like five or six months, maybe. That means your agent doesn't have any relationships with these editors. And, you know, that, right. that's a big problem anyway, but that's not the question that you no, answered. No, that's an inter- it's uh, interesting. I want yeah. to, we'll come back to it, but yeah, continue. So, yeah. So we managed to sell it and really Henry Holt was, I think the only one who made an official offer. There were other people sort of sniffing around and, you know, I had told Steven initially, he's like, look, I know how publishing works, which I didn't. It's like, I have no interest in writing a series. Like it's just, it's not like who I am as a reader or a writer. Like this is the only book of, of this detective. He's like, okay, got it. So Henry Holt made an offer and, you know, they ended up being the only publisher who made an offer and it was, you know, it was nice, you know, certainly super exciting. Uh, but they wanted a second book featuring the same detective or same character. So, you know, I figured there was a worse problem to have in life than to write a, a sequel that I wasn't planning on writing. Mm-hmm. So we said, yes. Um, and it was a two book hardcover deal. And I'll even tell you money if you want. It was, uh, you know, $70,000 advance for the two books you know, that advance would be spread out over the, really the two to three years, actually it ended up being like four years. Yeah. Which is pretty good for a first sure. major yeah, yeah. publisher sale, yeah. right? Especially you're talking about, I don't want to age you. <laughs> yeah. So it was, you know, so yeah, we agreed to that in 2007, right? You know, so that's 70,000 before the agent takes us 15%, et cetera. And it, you know, it's spread out over four years, but no, please it, it paid off a credit card. <laughs> right. uh, you know, I got to paint my uh, and fix the toilet in my bathroom. So I'm, you know, I'm not complaining at all. And and before you go on, I think it's interesting because I just learned this recently doing the deal that I did is that, um, so yeah, you mentioned those, those payments are broken up over two years. So when you get a, when you get a publishing deal um, with a you know major publisher, big five publisher, or New York city public, whatever you want to call it, uh, you get paid a percentage when you sign the deal, you get paid a percentage when you deliver the manuscript and it's accepted. You get paid a percentage, I think, when the hardcover comes out in most deals, then you get paid another right. percentage when the paperback comes out. That's typically, that's usually, that's pretty standard in your experience. Yeah. For uh, for me, uh, it's it's been, you know, when I agree to the new deal, like I've, I've had the fortune and privilege of having a multiple like new deal. So mm-hmm. usually on on signing of the contract, I get a chunk of, of the advance. And then it's typically upon delivery of the book and acceptance of the edits. Uh, and then when the book comes out, but, uh, the first time it, no sort of advance has been tied to the trade paperback that comes out later. Okay. Yeah. So it's like three, basically it's broken into three payments. Yeah. 
Right. And, you know, that's for each sort of each book, you know, if it's two book deal or a three book deal. Right. Right. Um, well, yeah. I just think that's interesting for people to realize you don't get a big, you don't get a big check up front for everything. Right. It's, no, <laughs> which is better. Right. You don't buy, you don't go out you and know, buy you the, better off having it you don't go out and buy yeah. the $50,000 car that you should not have. Right. No. Okay, no. sir. So I'm sorry. Continue. You're talking about Henry okay. Hall and, um, and you, and they, and they designed, they, they just did a two book deal. So one of the things that, uh, I think, you know, might be of interest because this, you know, it hasn't happened to me again, luckily, knock on wood. And I, I hope it wouldn't happen to other writers, but it was a hardcover deal. It was supposed to be both books were going to come out in hardcover. Right. And so like fast forward, you know, the editor that acquired me, you know, maybe like six or seven months later, you know, we had did the edits for the little sleep together, you know, and she was the champion of the book. The acquiring editor is really, you know, your hero for the book, you know, cause she has to, you know, fight the good fight with the sales team and the marketing team, you know, they decide how much of a push gets put and all that stuff. Anyway, uh, she left for random house shortly after I turned in like my final edits and that, and that's always bad. <laughs> right. It's always bad yeah. when your editor leaves. Like even if yes. like a, a very competent editor is assigned to you, you know, they just have no, not only do they have no personal stake in the book, they have no professional stake. Like if your book doesn't do well, it's like, Oh, well, it's not my fault. You know, this other editor, acquired it so there just isn't the same juice behind it right i mean you and i were just talking about that before we went live that yeah. i'm yeah i had the same situation where an editor leaves and i've heard other people like andy davidson and many others yeah that edit because the editor is huge now to your point they acquire the book and they they work with you on those proofs but they're also they're also the person who's championing your book as you go through the publication process the marketing right. all that stuff they're the ones in the in the room pushing for more promotion for right. your book so yeah, that's a gut shot when the editor leaves. And I've heard that so many times. It happens frequently. So, I mean, if you're, if you're ever in the position to have a choice between editors, that's something, you know, something to try to figure out, you know, is this a new editor? Is this someone who's been at that place for a while? Like, you know, if you have a choice, obviously I had no choice. <laughs> so shortly what happened after that, like Henry Holt actually changed, like whoever was running Henry Holt, they changed publisher, quote unquote, like the person in charge of Henry Holt. And shortly after that, like they wanted to, you know, the publisher like called, and said, Hey, you know, we're going to, we can only do this with your permission because contractually it's a hardcover deal. We want to publish the little sleep as a, you know, a trade paperback original. We think this book would do much better in that format. You know, it used to be a stigma that, you know, this is how they were selling it, selling it to me. Right. Right. So I, you know, because this is my first deal, I didn't feel like I was in a position to, to demand that they publish the little sleep as a hardcover. Cause I figured out oh, if I do that, they're just going to like, not do anything for the book and like never even put out a, a paperback after that. So, you know, just trying to be like a good team player, you know, we agreed that it would be trade paperback original, which also meant I really had no shot of making back <laughs> the advance, you know? So all those things combined together. I think the, the art work with all the guns on the cover, I know scared away some readers. So it really was just like, ah, I think the little sleep did. Okay. Like it didn't, it never made back, didn't come close to making back its advance at all. You know, got you know a nice review in the LA Times. You know, it got some reviews, but by the time like the second book came, the cover was terrible. There was no push put behind it at all. Like my editor did a great job of actually physically editing the book, but you know there was no right. no nothing within the the company itself. And to put the cherry on the top of you know, never mind the publisher not putting anything behind No Sleep to Wonderland. The week that the book came out, February of 2010, was the week Macmillan was first negotiating the price point of uh, Kindle <laughs> with Amazon and Amazon, Amazon reacted by pulling all, 
all of Macmillan's books off of Amazon. So the first oh, week, oh, oh. no sleep. So Wonderland was available. You couldn't get it on Amazon. That was sort of the wild west of the eBooks, I think. Right, right around those yeah. early aughts was when. Um, so yeah, because so yeah, so, so Paul was saying you get like usually I think you get like between ten and fifteen percent of hardcover. You get like seven and a half, eight to ten percent depending on your deal of paperbacks. But obviously the price point's different, so that's a major major gap. And but then you usually get like 25 percent depending on who you're talking to for eBooks. Right, you get twenty five to fifty percent of profit for audiobooks. So there's all these different things that trickle in here and there. But but yeah, if they cut hardcover out, that's a major major way to make back your your advantage. Yeah. yeah. And in 2010, audiobooks weren't what they are now. Like on CD, I don't remember. Yeah. I mean, like they weren't, yeah, right. There wasn't that many for, you know, streaming, you know, you couldn't like download the MP3 like we do now or just listen to it through Audible or, or you know, iBooks or, you know, whatever you use now. Just like there wasn't the, the audiobook readership that there is now, not even close. Let me ask you this. Going, if you could go back to that Henry Holt deal, knowing what you know now, having had much more success, is there anything that you think you could have done differently at the time? I am only asking this not to make not to make you lose sleep tonight. Sure. I'm only asking because <laughs> I thought maybe it'd be helpful for people who maybe find themselves in a sim- similar situation. Is there anything that you would go back and change that you that you would be in your control to change? So, the, you know, the hard part is there's only so much you can do as the writer. However, like I think some of my assumptions are like, oh, I'm with a big publisher. All my problems are solved. Or, you know, they'll take care of everything. I was surprised to learn like how much of the promotion I still had to do myself. So I would have, I would have been a little bit more proactive on that end. Like setting, I would have tried to set up more readings or do more local stuff as opposed to just letting or waiting for, you know, the publicity that was assigned to the book to do it. You know, it's not to say that they do a terrible job. They don't, they just have an incredibly hard one because the in-house publicity, I'm not the only person that they're, you know, promoting books for. They have, I don't know, who knows how many, other authors that they have to deal with. Right. Um, and that, and that's a job of high turnover as well. Like I think with, in my short brief Henry Holt uh, tenure, I think I had five publicists, not at the same time, but like, you know, just, they kept switching because someone, you know, kept leaving. So I don't know what I would do differently. I mean, I would say overall, like, you know, this would sort of connect everything that we've talked about. It was like, for me, I feel like my career has been an example of you know, everybody needs some sort of good fortune, some sort of good luck to go along with the hard work exactly. and, ho- and hopefully talent. And in thinking of it in terms of math, I just always approached it as the only way for that luck to break through is you need to give yourself as many opportunities as possible. So it's a numbers game. Like if you give yourself more opportunities, that gives luck more of a chance to break through. Yeah. If you get, if you get 20 irons in the fire, the chances are much better that you're going to straight gold on something. And, and yeah, to your point, just, again, I was talking to Sean Cosby yesterday and he brought the same point up. It's like, it's hard work equals luck. That's the formula. And then, yeah. and then you got to back up the luck with talent. And, and then, you know, if you get, once you get that break, you got to make sure that your best foot's forward. Okay. So I want to get into happier times. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Head full of ghosts hit 2015 became a huge hit. And um, I think, you know, part part of that was like Stephen King read it and loved it and tweeted about it. Um, but part of it, it was just a great book that I think hit it there. Well, you. you know, it's interesting. I remember re I remember when I just sold my first short story, um, Mother, which you blurb for me kindly <laughs> back in 2015 or 2015. And um, weird to think it's seven years ago, but it was. And that was that was the same year Headful of Ghosts came out. Is that correct? And can you talk a little bit about um, what the experience has been with William Morrow as com- not necessarily comparing to Henry? Well, we've already beat up on them a lot, but just com- but, but 
what are some takeaways that you've learned from working with William Morrow that, that you think might be beneficial for writers to hear? Like, what, what have been your, your highlights of working with, with your, your current publisher who you've done, I think, five books now with? Sure. So, you know, first and foremost, my, I'm so lucky that my editor is Jennifer Brell. She's someone that's been there forever, you know, isn't going anywhere. You know, if she's going anywhere, she's retiring, but she's not going to go and leave and go to a different publisher. Right. You're not going to let her. And she publishes Neil Gaiman and Matt Ruff and Joe Hill. So it's like, oh, you know, she has clout. Mm-hmm. You know, so obviously you can't, <laughs> I didn't get to pick the fact that it was Jennifer Brell. She just happened to get the manuscript on the round two of submissions and really liked it. And we hit it off. So, I mean, that part of it is the luck part that, you know, I would say briefly that my agent and I like went through, she was on the second round of submissions. The first round we had like seven or eight editors express interest mm-hmm. and he tried to set up an auction sort of like hopefully and mm-hmm. all eight backed out like two days later. That was the lowest point of my publishing life. Which, which I guess happens more than I when they yeah. think, because I think Josh Malerman had a similar conversation, a, a similar anecdote about an, another auction being set up, and I want to put words, yeah. and, and then everyone dropping out. And I was thought again, now to bring up Sean Cosby again, we his uh, blacktop wasteland. He had a seven, I think it was a seven editor auction or seven publisher auction set up, and the day of, all but one dropped out. So I guess it's like a. <laughs> It's weirdly yeah. common, I guess, but it's horrible. It's a tricky thing because, you know, they might, these editors might be interested, but they probably have like, I can't go above a certain advance. And so like, oh, if all these other editors are involved, like I can't compete. So they pull out kind of thing. You know, it's funny, like, so this was 2014 when we were selling it and the stuff we were hearing were the editors love the book, but like a lot of their sales team were saying either uh, one, his sales record's bad. <laughs> And, and and that's sort of the, that's why there's so many people who publish one or two books. You know, I think it was New York times that said the average career of someone who publishes with the big publishers is shockingly low because you really only get like one or two chances. You know, it's, it's very not fair, but that's just how it works. Like when Barnes Noble or whoever's ordering books, they look at your, <laughs> they look at your sales record and they basically make their order based on what happened previously. But anyway, you know, eight people passed out partly because of my prior sales record, which we knew was going to be a hurdle to overcome. And also people were afraid of horror. You know, it's much, it's different now, thankfully, but there's still, that's still out there. Like even William Morrow never puts horror on my spine <laughs> or, you know, right. they definitely for a few of the books were like, Oh, psychological suspense is what it is. You know, that, that's still out there. Yeah. There's definitely a stigma with horror, which is too bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's the stigma, but it's also just part of the, I think the group memory of uh, the cultural memory of publishing when horror just crashed in the nineties. Right. Right. Um, right. I think oh, there's still right. enough of a memory of like, Oh, horror's having a moment. That moment could end at any moment. <laughs> yeah. 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 No. So Jen is a hero. Uh, I mean, saved my career and you know, she's, you know, so awesome to work with. I'm, I'm super fortunate, lucky to have her. So, I mean, that's the, to me, that's been the biggest difference is having that. Um, but, you know, everyone that I work with at Morrow has been great, you know, from marketing to publicity, all been very attentive, very professional. And still, that's not to say, like with a couple of books, I've actually done a little bit of my own marketing, just trying to learn from the prior lesson. Mm-hmm. Like I would say a head full of ghosts, as you mentioned, sold well. It was never like a bestseller, but like it, I don't know, it's become like, I would call it a cult novel where like, you know, never made any bestsellers list, but still just sells Mm -hmm. like seven years late, six years later, seven years later, you know, I'm so lucky that I I just got a royalty check for a head full of ghosts. That was like, wow, Mm -hmm. this book is still selling seven years later, but you know, disappearance didn't, hasn't made its advance back. So I was really worried. Oh, head full of ghosts did well. Disappearance didn't do well. 
you know, this next book has to do well. So right. I actually put some of my invested some of my own money into like an online campaign that I know helps cabinet the end of the world sort of eke on to a couple of bestsellers lists. Yeah. And that's interesting because I've had, I, I'll, we'll call it author to not be named, yeah. but I had an author reach out to me who has had New York Times bestselling books and had, and has had them recently. And I was doing like this little, I did one with you. I, you know, I work, I, I, I do these interviews for Book and Film Globe, which is the, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the companies behind the, the series. And, um, and they reached out to me and they said, Hey, can we, can we set up, a, would, you know, would you be willing to set up an interview with me? And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, it's, you know, it's not entertainment weekly. And they're like, yeah, don't, I, I don't care anything I can do. I gotta, I gotta get out there and yeah. hustle this book. And it was with a major publisher. It was a major author. So even when you get to that stage, you're, I think you still have to, it's still a lot of it's still on the author to, to hustle a little bit and to make sure you're promoting your, your own stuff. Absolutely. And then I would tell you, like, even with a head full of ghosts, some of the stuff that went well for it were things that I, that I had sort of had in place through just being around mm-hmm. stubbornly for 14 years or longer in, in my own hard work. So for example, at the time, Jennifer mentioned, oh, I can't send a book to the New York Times reviewer because of a personal conflict of interest. I was like, what? <laughs> so I found a friend who was friends with that reviewer. I was like, can you please give him, you know, a head full of ghosts? And she did. And, it, you know, and it was included, you know, in a group review of books, but it was my first time in the New York Times. Hmm. Um, I, just from my contacts that I've had from being, you know, at that point from being around for a while, like I said, okay, you know, please send it to him. He's reviewing for NPR and like, please send it to this person. And it's not like I was calling in personal favors. I never said like, hey, hey, person X, you know, keep an eye out for this book. I need a good review. It's just, no, like this is who you should send it to. I'd it was funny. It was a little bit of a realization is, Oh, I've accrued enough knowledge that, you know, I can, I can help. I can do some of my own stuff right, here. Right. Um, and, and the same thing with Stephen King. Uh, you know, obviously I really wanted to get him a book and Jennifer was like, well, I'm, I, I don't send books to him because I work with Joe. And I, I was like, I totally get it. You know, I tried directly <laughs> through Stephen's assistant and she, you know, it's funny. She was like, you know, this book's going to go like in a room with like a thousand other books. He'll walk by, he may or may not take it. I'm like, Hey, you know, I get it. Right. But it was actually two other friends slash acquaintances who had read A Head Full of Ghosts who were friends with Stephen and said, hey, Stephen, you should really read this is how the book, you know, came across his desk. And so, you know, again, some good luck, but also maybe, you know, I, I met those two people through just being around and, and writing and, you know, they like my stuff. And again, it was never like, hey, it's not like a cabal of personal people just doing favors for other people. It's just like, oh, you know, this is what, you know, how it should work. Like, oh, these people like my book. They put in a good word you know, without even telling me that they were going to do that right. kind of thing. I think you have to just, I think you said it earlier, you got to put yourself out there, you know, for better or for worse, you know, Stephen King retweeted my book, Boys in the Valley, a couple months ago. And of course the book is not available for purchase. Uh, so it was yeah. kind of interesting timing, um, but it led to some good things. But the point is like I had, um, I had uh, been working with Sadie Hartman, who's known widely as mother horror, who's kind of like a reviewer and influencer on social media and whatnot. And we were just over, a, I don't know, I think I sent her a copy of my um, first book a couple of years ago, maybe. And then I reached out to her about Beneath the Pale Sky, maybe working with them, uh, Nightworms on that. And, you know, so point being, it was a, it was a relationship that developed over a couple of years. And, and then she just happened to review Boys in the Valley and Stephen King, happened to retweet her review. So right. it's, but it wasn't like I had, to your point, I didn't have like my buddy wasn't Steve's buddy. It was just happened to be like, I just got my stuff out to 
as many people as I could. And I wanted, and a lot of times I'll just send books out to people and say, Hey, look, like editors or, or people who bloggers and just be like, look, I'm not asking for anything, but I just want to introduce you to my work. And, um, you had to kind of make your own luck is I think the the takeaway with some of that stuff. Um, one, I know we're going over, but I do want to ask you this because I, I don't, I want to sneak it in. So you're with, you're with William Morrow. You've done, uh, I think this will be your fifth novel coming up with them. Is that fifth novel, six book? Is that right? Um, three, fourth, including yeah, growing yes. things. It's now a six book, and yeah, yeah. um, which is amazing, by the way. Congratulations! It's a long time to be with one publisher, and I think what would be interesting is to hear about how. Okay, so you have your two book deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know what the first book is? Because that's the book that they've read and they like. Right. Um, the second book is call it TBD. Yep. So when you when you're like, okay, you know, I got to come up with that second book, or God, you know, willing, two books of the uh, ensuing deal. What, how is your? How are you thinking about pitching them that book? You what do you what do you take into consideration? How do you go about that process of going? Okay, I think this is the book that I want to pitch to these guys, and is it always accepted? Uh, yeah, great questions. So I'd say uh, with a handful of ghosts, I definitely had that in mind. I was like, oh, I want to make sure I have a great relationship with this editor. So uh, the sec- the book after a handful of ghosts, that was the one I did the most sort of pitching. <laughs> I was like feverishly trying to come up with different book ideas. And trying to come up with the one that both Jennifer and I liked best mm-hmm. because I felt like that was really important. So it's funny in a weird way, like disappearance of devil's rock almost felt like, I don't want to say the compromise candidate, but like, I think I can't even remember what the other book idea I liked was better, but I liked something else better. She liked something else better, but they both had issues. So, you know, I, I finally came upon disappearance of devil's rock. And these were just like one page pitches or, or what, 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 we, what were you working up at this time. And yeah. Those other ones were probably a little bit longer, like maybe like really brief summaries of what they could be or mm-hmm. might be, you know, the disappearance one ended up being quite a bit longer. Um, and that's the book I needed the most help with from Jennifer, to be frank, both uh, in terms of like the summary. <laughs> yeah. She really sort of hammered me on the end of what I had for the original idea for the end of that book, which she should have. And even like why I turned in the book to her ended up cutting out like 10,000 words and you know did a lot of work to it. Um, to fast forward a little bit, so those two books are done. It was like 20, oh, what year is that? 2017, April, 2017. Uh, I was pitching her a novel and pitching her growing things. In the novel, I wrote like a, an absurdly long 30 page, <laughs> 30 page summaries. Like I felt like I wrote the book already. And I wasn't like totally on board. Like when I wrote it, I was like, I don't know if this is right or not. Like, and part of the reason why I felt that way is like, I kind of dreaded the idea of writing the book version of what I just wrote, which isn't a good sign. But, you know, my agent pitched it to her and, and she was just like, eh, nah, <laughs> on the novel. <laughs> She's very straightforward, right. you know, no bullshit old school, which is, I really appreciate. Right. My agent has a hard time taking it sometimes, but, uh, but she wanted the collection. She's like, you have another idea for a book? My agent was sort of crushed, but I was almost like relieved. I'm like, oh yeah, I'll come up with something. And then I came up with The Cabinet at the End of the World. So I'm glad that she made me, <laughs> that she rejected that one. And, th- and that turned out to be a three book deal. Cabin, Growing Things. And then an unnamed novel, which I just sort of described to her over lunch one day. It's like, do you have an idea? I'm like, yeah, this is the idea. I was like, okay. Then with the most recent deal, Paul Bearer's Club, I wrote like 30 pages and uh, a brief summary of what Paul Bearer's Club was. And the offer was for Paul Bearer's Club, another short story collection, which I wasn't pitching. That was a surprise. And another unyet named novel. So the short story collection, I just kind of sprung on her last week. I didn't tell her about the original novella that I was writing for it. Yeah, and I've sort of just jumped into now the next novel, which I haven't pitched her. I'm just going to be like, 
don't know. I think at this point we we've worked with each other for so long. I trust her. I think she trusts me that, you know, it'll be something that we can work with. Yeah. That's interesting. So yeah, cause it can be, it can be, I, I guess probably to your point when you're, when you're with a new publisher, it can, it's probably a little bit on the formal side, maybe your agent's presenting something in a, right. in a two or three page document, but then yeah, once you get comfortable, it's like maybe you're just sitting there at lunch and you say, here's the idea. And I, I remember you talking about, and you can tell me if this is incorrect. Um, actually, I remember us sitting at, I remember sitting at a bar at, I want to say it was Necronomicon. In Providence, in yeah. Providence. And you were like, yeah, I'm working on this book cabin at the end of the world um, at the <laughs> time. And, um, but I remember, I, tell me this is a true story. And I think you were like trying to come up with an idea. And I think you were like on a plane going somewhere and you were like doodling in yeah. your book and you doodled like a cabin. That was cabin. Yeah, yeah. I love that story. Laird <laughs> had a great story. He talked about how he found, um, when he before he got published, he had found a copy of fantasy and science fiction on the ground. Wow! And he picked it up, and he was like, "Oh, I should send it to these guys," not knowing that they were like an impossible market to sell oh, to. Huh? I didn't know that story. And they bought the story, which is I think it was Old Virginia. Oh wow, that's amazing. Yeah, there's some good writer anecdotes out there. I always like to end these conversations because I think everyone's got a little bit of a different taste of of um of what could be helpful for a writer is is that if you have any books on writing that you would recommend writers pick up? And also if you have any writers that you would recommend to writers who maybe are examples in your mind of people that you could read uh, that exemplify in your mind, like a great short story writer or, or a great novel writer that you think a writers should be read, reading. Sure. So um, when I first started writing, I read, and maybe this is important because as I said, I never got an MFA, never studied it uh, classically or academically, I should say. Um, it's an older book, but John Gardner's The Art of Fiction, I think just really, I found that for me to be extremely helpful, you know, because I'd heard about the rule, you know, some of the rules of fiction that you hear about. And he explains why, like he explains why sentimentality is bad and, <laughs> you know, things I just found very helpful. Uh, two more recent ones. One is a book called Rebel Yell by Lance Olson. And the cool part about that is the book is really a, a whole bunch of essays by a very disparate group of, you know, interesting writers with writer advice and, and exercises and stuff like that. And some, you know, some of the advice is actually about like sort of how to find an agent, you know, it, it, it really just covers like the whole sort of rainbow <laughs> of the, of the publishing experience. And uh, Nick Mamatas's Starve Better, I think is very good too. It, it, that's definitely more nuts and bolts, you know, on, on the how to of writing parts. Um, now, as far as writers that I would recommend, you know, for short stories, my favorite short story writer, I think of the last 10 years, is uh, Mariana Enriquez. That's only 10 years for us because it's only been within the last, you know, four years or so that they've been translating her work into English. But she has two short story collections, which are amazing. She's Argentinian. Anyone writing horror uh, short stories, she's a must read. Uh, I've definitely been learning a lot by reading her stuff. And also I'll just mention, because I just read, she has a new, uh, she just signed a, a new novel. Iadra Novi has written a couple of novels that I just adore and think about all the time. And I definitely felt like I became a better writer and a person reading her novels. One was Ways to Disappear. And the one after that, which I liked even better, and I can't remember the title, but her name is Idra Novi. She, she translates books for, you know, she did a translation or she's done a few translations that have done really well too. And she writes her own fiction. Um, just someone who, you know, in, in recent years, I thought like, oh, wow, here's someone who's really doing interesting stuff with the novel. Those are great suggestions. And then lastly, let's plug your book that's coming out. Uh, Paul, was it? I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah. The Paul Bearers Club coming July 5th. 
Um, all right, Paul. Well, thank you so much, sir. I appreciate your time. I'm sure the uh, writers who are listening do as well. And I wish you the best of luck with the upcoming release. And we'll talk to you soon. All right, Philip. Thanks. Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. What you need in your ears is real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. You choose the topics and the publications. Audio Hopper gives you a commercial-free straight read of the story. Read by real voice actors, not annoying computer voice simulators. Get a variety of points of view and real news. Audio Hopper. Real news narrated. In the App Store.